0: The best thing to win the Masters, you you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive. So that's the best thing. I'm very happy.
1: Welcome to episode 96 of Talking Golf History, and our final series on one of America's greatest golf course architects, A.W. Tillinghast. We are joined again today by golf historian, author, and world-renowned A.W. Tillinghast expert, Phil Young as we dive into Tilly's later years, the Great Depression, bankruptcy, and his much maligned work with the PGA of America. Before we dive into our third episode on Nast, let me pose a question to you. If there was one hole that you could recreate in your backyard, at your business, or perhaps in a public park that represented the best golf course architecture, what hole would it be? I have partnered with Chris Wold to help recreate the world's greatest golf holes using synthetic grass for private residences, golf courses, businesses, and city parks. We would like to know your favorite par 3 in the world. If you could only choose one hole, what would it be? Let me know on Twitter. Just make sure to use @sHistorians in your reply. From the greatest golf holes to one of the greatest golf course architects of all time. Let's get into part three of the history of A.W. Tillinghast. Tillinghast. He was a man that was blessed uh, by the best of times and cursed also by the worst of times, it seems. His -hmm. design career was not immune to the Great Depression. How did the onslaught of the Great Depression affect the Tillinghast family?
0: um different than anyone else really understands um it, there is the incorrect fable that during the, the the depression when he was on the PGA tour he came back and got to his home and there was a federal tax sale going on and he was able to stop it and, and st- uh, and then buy back the things that were sold. Well, first of all, if he was able to buy back the things that were sold, he would have paid the taxes and the tax sale. So that's number one. The second thing is about two months before arriving back there he, to uh, uh, the PGA that he, he was uh, had, to, uh, had to get back uh, to Harrington Park because he was going to close up his home permanently. And what no one knew at that time was he had already decided to, when the PGA Tour was over to uh, stay out in California. Tilly had financial problems, but not the one that anyone out. In 1926 or so, he decided that he wanted to make his own course for himself and have it as a club. And that was Paxano, downriver from Shawnee. He bought 400 acres of land to do this on.
1: What year was this again?
0: 26. Oof,
1: yeah.
0: End up putting close to $400,000 of his own money into it. And it would end up never opening because of the Depression and nobody buying the memberships that at first he thought they would be buying. And that led to personal bankruptcies in 1930 for both he and his wife. And yet, despite bankruptcies, they never lost the antiques business they had. They didn't lose the antiques in any way. They actually went with them when they moved out to California and uh, ended up uh, uh, being part of the new antiques business he had out there. They were still being sold now under a new antiques business name. He actually opened up a new business for it. to closed the old one, opened a new one. Actually survived it financially. And uh, they didn't have much. And yet they were able in 33 in November to go on vacation in Mexico for a month. So there, and, and it was after that, he came back and began work at Bethpage. He was able to take a, another vacation in, in uh, late 34 out to San Francisco. It, it wasn't what anybody really understood, Um he would sell things he would sell antiques to to so that they could manage their standard of living which was pretty high even still um but they didn't have it as bad as 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 was thought and uh so uh the the family after he and his wife passed they had things left to them that you would have thought never would have. The the some of Lillian's very expensive jewelry I've saw it with one of the granddaughters who who has some of it. Uh, the uh, really very valuable antiques are in the homes of some of them. Um, other, other one of the one of the granddaughters had Tilly's golf clubs. Oh wow, uh, that's cool. Who, and they were stored behind a refrigerator until oh, I saw that. of course they, they were. Right, <laughs> um, but yeah, it it wasn't what was thought. He built a house for his son-in-law after being um, uh, next door to him in twenty-nine to thirty.
1: Yeah, you know it's interesting, Phil, because you know you do when you when you see the records of Tillinghast uh, filing for bankruptcy. You, you get this mindset of okay, it's the Great Depression. You know he's broke, right? He's you know in like an Alistair McKenzie situation where he passes away penniless is the, the the thought that goes through your head, and it it doesn't seem like it wasn't that kind of a financial burden. I'm sure it was a financial burden, but not the not the same.
0: Nothing like that. In, in, in fact, when it, when you realize it was self caused, but not by the, the rumors are well he had lived this lifestyle well it, it's and, and just wasted he well, invested
1: the other story the- being I've heard people you know say he was an alcoholic right which is another myth that I think you bring up in the book
0: absolutely it's it's um, part of the problem is the more I, I, I researched Tilly his life his work for these past couple of decades. The more I recognize that everything that's out there, you have to ignore and start over and see what is true, what is provable. And then what will come out also is where did information that was wrong come from? So going back to that uh, wonderful Frank Hannigan article in the Golf Journal, this is an example of where well-intentioned research can lead to misinformation. When he researched that article, what he did is he got a hold of uh, Dr. Philip Brown Jr., Tilly's grandson. Now, his mom, uh, Elsie, was uh, Tilly's younger daughter, was still alive, so he sent him a series of letters containing questions that he asked him, can you ask your mother this? I mean, this was in the 60s. Nobody has cell phones. You know, It's you just uh, do it how you can, pen and paper. And so his grandson asked his mother, she gave him answers, he wrote it down word for word, sent it back. And that's where he got his information from, a single source. Now, before I get back to why that was a problem, um, when I researched, when I decided to do the Tilly biography back in 2004, 2003, it was released in 2004, um, I was told of of someone I knew, I had great respect for, he had already been... um, uh, Signed a contract to do one. So I decided, well, I'm not going to. And the, and the person who was really pushing me to, to ignore that and go ahead, when I told him that, he said, Look, that person has been had this contract for years and he's just never going to get around to it. And said, He's never even talked to the family. And that struck me. I said, How can you write a biography without talking to the family? And so at the time, there were five surviving grandchildren. One of whom actually passed away before I could get to to, to speak with her. Um, three from the the, the Brown side: uh, Doctor Brown, Pam, and Francie. Uh, Barbara and Marnie knew Marnie Lou from from the the Worden side, and Marnie Lou passed away before I got to speak with her. But the other four I had still to this day have on tape uh, numerous times, and and uh, you know they what. Immediately struck me, and, and in effect, I got to to uh, interview Marty Lou because she and her sister Barbara had been had engaged in a series of letters about their family over the years, and her sister kept them. So I got to see all of those letters. Oh, that's cool. If you talk to the wardens, you will see a hundred and eighty degree different person from when you talk. Those of the Browns. Why? They're the same daughters,
1: the mm-hmm.
0: same you know, two daughters from the same parents, and so that question began a search and and for understanding for a long time ago. During the search, during my interviews, um, it became quite clear that the two Tillinghast daughters. Viewed their parents diametrically opposed, and again, why was that? And learning information, and I have to be delicate here because some I I, I promised not to a lot of some of the information from in these interviews won't be made available. Uh, for another decade, because that was my promise to no that's fine. Uh, interviewed uh, but there were problems that Elsie uh, uh, Brown had, and um as a result, she viewed her parents in a very 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 negative light and told things maybe she believed or not, so were they true, weren't they? Whereas everything that the Wordens we told by her, her parents weren't just told because they lived next door to Tilly and Lillian. In fact, Barbara was always kiddingly called Tilly's shadow. She followed her beloved grandfather everywhere he went, including sometimes to to uh, courses, to antique shows, to uh, movies. He would take him her, her with him. He, he was beloved by them, just not the person you thought. In, in explaining those things to Dr. Brown, he, um, uh, he got surprised at the difference, uh, and he kept in, uh, running correspondence with me for many years until uh, shortly before he died. Um, among the things that he decided was to do a little investigating of his own, and since he's passed, I can say this, That he decided since he was a uh, physician at the Mayo Clinic, uh, just as his father was, until he would go to the Mayo Clinic for uh, medical care when when he was up there to visit them, which was about once a year. um, He went back and looked in their archives and was stunned to learn that it said that Tilly had stopped drinking, Mm. hadn't been drinking heavy. And that was eye-opening to him. So what he was said wasn't accurate, and yet those are things that w- were the family stuff that was passed down. Yeah, so it
1: still follows him.
0: Th- when that gets out there, and this. Belief gets out there, which, again, in effect, then gets supported by Tillinghast himself when he wrote about some tournaments he played in in early after uh, uh, and into the early where they would have uh, drinking at night. Well, see, he was then he was now. And it's and that's how that whole story came about. If we were
1: if we were all judged by our 20s, we'd all be idiots. In other words.
0: Exactly, exactly. And here I am, 69, I still am an idiot.
1: (laughs) I love it, so am I. uh,
0: But so there's been misinformation and so that's why I've tried to be careful about what I put out there is true, Mm -hmm. what I'm allowed to, and also what I believe is true and make certain that there is a a default A defining line between the two. You can't, with with history, we have this idea that we learn something, we're changing history. No, we're not. We're not changing history. We're changing what we say about history. And there's a huge difference. History has already happened. You can't change it. I fell down the stairs just because somebody says I didn't doesn't mean my leg doesn't hurt.
1: Well, in into your point of the single source, uh, I'll give you a great example. And, I, and I'm not saying that anybody's saying this, but I found an article when researching Oakmont Country Club that Willie Anderson was named the pro. And I was like, well, I I know every pro that's been the pro at Oakmont. Did he get fired? Did he, you know, he died an early death? Did he die right before it? No, the newspaper article was wrong. So, you know, that is a source. It was actually Willie's brother who was named an assistant pro, but the newspaper put Willie Anderson named pro at Oakmont country club. So if even when you find a source, it doesn't mean the source is correct. That's why we need multiple sources.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you can't just, even even where it comes to, um, uh, who designed courses and when? It seems like it should be so simple, but it isn't. And it's, you've got to be careful. You you, uh, And yet at the same time, you can't demand um, that someone provide, uh, for example, uh, uh, if I say a certain course is designed at a certain time, well, I haven't seen any newspaper articles. Well, what can I tell you? There's other proof that says he did. Right. Well, it's got to be in the newspaper. Why? Yeah. Not all close, put everything in the newspaper. Nope, so
1: they don't though. <laughs> it, it, there's a lot of courses that they'll talk about the architects on the course and they won't even mention who the architect is.
0: Yeah. Yep. And the, and then there's courses that believe certain things about themselves that, that are incorrect because they didn't realize, for example, that they may have moved from one site to another. And so they're still linking it to a certain architect. So it, it's, uh, it, it's, that's a, another thing that makes the the study of golf course architecture really fascinating because we have so much more to learn. And mm-hmm. most important of all is it can't be a one-person job because there is so much involved that one person can't do it. I was fortunate because of my situation allowed me to do more but it took 20 years to get to the bottom of a lot of things.
1: Yeah.
0: And, it and that's dedicating,
1: of- you know, countless hours a day, every single day at it. Well, let me ask you this, Phil. I mean, here's a, I guess a, this is one I hear a lot out there in the golf course architecture world. Uh, you know, if there are any disparaging stories that drag down the legacy uh, of the legendary architect, some critics point to the work has did Driving the country on the behalf of the PGA of America, which started in, I believe, August of 1935 and ended somewhere around April 1937. These folks say that Tillinghast drove around the U.S. destroying golf course architecture. Um, how would you characterize Tillinghast's work with the PGA? And yeah, you know, let's just go with that. How do, how would you how would you respond to those people? Are they correct? Are they incorrect? What do you think?
0: Well, the, the tour actually ended the end of December of 1937. Okay. So we'll get A little longer. The, yeah. The problem is we don't have any of the letters or documents sent after basically maybe one in May, because uh, the PGA decided these are things that can be thrown away. Um, the, and, and you know, this already, the, in in the Tillinghast Chronicles uh, book, the tour that Tilly took, which is three hundred, which you documented
1: pages. unbelievably. By the way, folks, I mean it's it's the is it the largest of your books, perhaps at least the ones I have.
0: It's it's largest of the printed volume 2 is twelve hundred and twelve pages. That's why that, that's why it's a PDF. <laughs> but but yeah, it it is it's pretty big. Uh, but I am convinced most others wouldn't be, but I am convinced that it's the greatest accomplishment in the history of the game of golf. And the reason is, when you really look at what he did, and these letters that we do have, as well as contemporaneous newspaper accounts, which you know, I have all over those, uh, the timeline, which is basically what it is, uh, of what he did, when he did how he did it, shows a guy who was almost no support for a while from the PGA itself. He was having to uh, make his own phone calls at a time where a lot of places didn't have telephones and sending telegrams to schedule appointments to, he was driving with his wife who was with him 90% of the tour uh, in their own car, paying their way and getting re- re- for it when he would get to a site by that local pga he would then build the uh, uh national organization um he would go out many times when he was not well in fact one at one point in san francisco area he almost died from the flu out there um he was that sick and yet he went out and did some work before finally having to uh take I'm off. Um, he had severe leg problems that he was having he trouble walking, and yet there wasn't a cart driving him around back then. He was walking the courses, and he was um, uh, looking at one course a day would be great. Some days he he would see four. He was answering questions by newspapers. He did. Re- interviews. He did a television interview in 1935. He did, uh, at every location he went to, uh, he held a meeting at night with the local PGA association to go over what this was about. And he traveled around the country, not once, but twice around the entire country. He did this no matter the weather. He was, uh, in, uh, an area where there were active tornadoes and didn't realize it until he was in the middle of it in in the South. He ran into snowstorms, which kept him from uh, going the way he wanted to and had to turn around. Uh, And that fortunately helped him because a plane crashed on the very road he was driving on a few hours later. Um, He, um, people he was supposed to meet with Forgot it. he would. He, there was this one course where there wasn't even a person at at the at at the course. So he walked around the course himself, did an examination, wrote it up, and left it in their mailbox.
1: Unbelievable! What? What? Define for people who don't know. What's what was the purpose of his work with the PGA? He's going around to courses for what purpose?
0: Well, the idea for it was. Uh, George Jacobus's, it was mission. PGA members were losing their jobs. Many of the pros stopped paying dues. He needed to save the organization. So he came up with the idea of give them free architectural advice. And the architectural advice was to do one of, uh, of several things. First, do you have a problem you need advice for? We'll advise you on that. Two, would you like advice in which we can show you how to uh, do your maintenance as well as make changes that will save you money? Here you are, depression, you're hanging on to the most worthless job, PJ professional for a golf club at that time, right? That's one that can be done away with real quick. And you go to your board uh, and say, Hey, I'm bringing a guy in, world-class architect. He designed all these great courses. It's not going to cost you a penny. He's going to show us how to do things that's going to save us money.
1: Interesting. So some of the designs, you know, he he gets burnt because people are saying that, you know, he basically went around devaluing the architecture of these golf courses. When in fact, you're in the Great Depression. First, you're probably trying to save the club. But second of all, by being hired by the PGA of America, you're essentially saying we can decrease the value of golf course maintenance, but keep the professionals. If you're looking to cut costs, right, let's keep this guy employed and we can make tweaks to the golf course that will have a savings during these tough times. Is that a fair statement?
0: That That's true. And and, and what's, what also is unknown by, until you read the book, is that Tilly wasn't the only architect who was offered this. Donald Ross was as well. And we know that from one of Tilly's letters to, the, to, to, the, uh, to Donald Ross, in which he mentions it. And um, uh, Ross turned it down. And then when Tilly went to Pinehurst to see Ross and see Pinehurst, he wasn't going there to, to inspect it. It was something he did for himself and to see his friend. They talked all about the pga tour and and what was happening so uh, this this was um uh, a lot bigger than than what most people thought uh uh, in fact in the beginning they thought it would last a few months they they, that went two years and would have kept going uh but there was a change in in the uh associations uh those running it and 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 Jacobus was out and they decided, well, now we're going to do a different thing. And that's the only reason it was stopped.
1: Interesting. Um, I mean, that had to place a major toll on A.W. Tillinghast. I mean, he was seemingly in his car for two years, just transversing the country.
0: Pulling up to places, he, he would have to spend time wherever he was getting maps so that he could plan on where he would go to next. Think about that. Doing yeah. that at, after walking around courses and uh, including in the pouring rain, some of them, in cold and heat, uh, again, just trying to figure out how from the Washington State to Oklahoma in 1936. My goodness. How do you do that today? I was, big deal you just keep going when the light turns red you stop then you keep on going right right right. uh, today not at back then not at all you had to realize and and the the roads weren't there and and it was a simple thing like laundry think about that oh yeah right is why washing the clothes every day um it it was really 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 a major accomplishment and yet he gave every bit of his being into that by being honest he didn't just say ah yeah do a little of this that i'm going home i'm tired no he 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 really uh examined looked at and gave his honest feelings and what what i found out is that there are i can point to at least 40 of these courses that agreed to do his work and agreed that it was better.
1: Yeah.
0: And there's hints that there's a whole bunch of others that did. It just can't be proven at this time. Um, uh, one surprising one that that jumped out to me was Long of You. This great course. Uh, so many people love it and talk about it and go to their website. The website says that uh, it was Tilly's visit in 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 during the PGA tour, which has made it the course it is today.
1: Well, that's something, right? Yeah,
0: uh, it, it's it, there's surprises you learn at every turn about this. So um, he wasn't changing architecture; he was helping the architecture that was there. Sometimes that included changes. Sometimes That meant. Well, you know what you need, you've got to, like, there were a couple of courses he visited where they, there was a danger to the way the holes were built because they were too close to each other, in one case, crossing each other, and how do you get around that? And he designed new holes for them, and yet not one of them did he build. He then said, get a hold of this local architect. That was his job, too, to make recommendations for local architects who." get to those clubs so that they could get work. He was making work for architects everywhere. This was, this was just remarkable what he did.
1: You know, I don't know much about Tilly after this tour. Um, I guess I have two questions. One, you know, did he ever fully regain his financial footing? And then two, how did his golf design business fare during the rest of the great depression?
0: He kept his footing that what it was. The move to California was difficult. Uh, his house was actually sold in 1938. Uh, uh, shortly after they left for good. Um, so they had some funds. They had their antiques that they, they that hadn't been sold that they started selling he went into business with Billy Bell and he was really disappointed with Billy Bell. He um, There were a number of courses that he visited that Bell had designed during the tour and Bell went to them when he was there. And he was on site with Tilly, uh, 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 a number of them. And uh, that led to work for Bell. And so Bell was thrilled to go into business with him and it was supposed to be both of them shared. And it turned out that bell did not share the work that he got. In fact, bell got a lot of work on California and and Western courses and, um, Tilly didn't share it with him, And so it didn't didn't share it with him. Right. It it, it didn't last long. It Mm -hmm. lasted barely a year and they went their separate ways. Uh, uh, then at the end of that year, Tilly uh, had his uh, uh, had a heart attack, and that sent him to have to live with his uh, daughter in uh, uh, Ohio. And uh, then two years, little less than two years later, he died. So it really um, was a rough time for him emotionally, especially because he, he okay. Uh, this will now lead because he was so well received. He really was. When you read all the articles about his his work, uh, doing these things, and and um, the letters of appreciation to the PGA were remarkable too. That that, that they still have. Um, that his last year or so, two years, he was very depressed. So it's not surprising when he did. Um, he, he was physically unable to do any more work. Um, I do know his daughter would drive him to go see courses. Wow! Just like, from the car.
1: He was addicted to the golf work, right? Yep. And when he couldn't do it anymore, it kind of, in a way, broke his heart.
0: One one of the things that is, uh, out at me, which brings probably my great Tillinghast question that is unsolvable at this point. He sold his personal library to a good friend of his, uh, Angelo uh, uh, Levito in, in, in 1941. And it went out there and it included some old golf clubs, among other things. And the... Uh, son-in-law who inherited them, um, put them for sale through PBA gallery, galleries. About two years or three years ago now, right? Um, and in it, of course, was a letter that he Tilly had sent to his friend. And in that letter, he mentions that he'll find when when the the you know the packages get to him. There's an old club that was given to him by old tom morris Mm. when he was over there wow and tom told him that when he was giving it to him it was about 80 years old and that he actually used it in one of his victories in the british Open. oh wow that's nowhere to be found it's gone the family didn't even know realize what it was oh dear they have no idea where it what. That may be the single most valuable golf club not in a collection in the world.
1: Yeah, that's sad. You
0: know where it is.
1: So someone's got a Tom Morris club out there and they have no idea what they have. It's probably in my collection. I'm not going to lie. It's and hopefully, one of these around hopefully
0: me. Hopefully they have it and hopefully it wasn't broken or something. I mean, the thing away. is,
1: they may have it, but they don't. Anyway, I mean, they might not know what it is. It's just a club. It's just an old Tom Morris club, right? I mean, it's you know appreciated but not revered. Right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Uh,
1: Well, let's close out our time with a few more questions here. Um, These are kind of off the top. What three courses designed by A.W. Tillinghast would I have to play, I guess, to best understand his genius for golf course design? So if you just took some guy off the street, not even me, and you said, if you really want to understand Tillinghast and his brilliance, I'm going to give you three courses that you need to see in your lifetime what three would those be? Doesn't mean they're the best, mind the way. I mean, no, it's just,
0: no, 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 no San Francisco golf club. Um, uh, the second one will sound self-serving. And that's why I start out by saying I had an opportunity to consult on its, uh, recent master plan and, uh, to restore it. Southwood hoe on long Island. And the reason for that is it's the closest he got to, Designing a course next to the ocean—it's less than half a mile to the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. It is on one of the worst tracks of land you can because it's so narrow and long. Yet every par three goes in a different direction. Every wind is comes at every, from you at every single direction. It's plain and and really and truly, it's one of the most fun courses I ever played. I I, I just southward in, ho in, southward ho
1: i'm embarrassed and, to say i've never even heard of southward ho i feel bad for saying that the i use it
0: because of it's san francisco golf club because it's sheer brilliance of use of the rolling land and yeah. terrain and, and what's gotten out of it and fenway oh, okay wow Fenway yeah. because it is again it's different land it, it, it's one big hill And a lot of movement coming down, around, in every which way, and what he did, where he did, how he did, and how he got around it is also quite fascinating. In the land where you also have Wingfoot, Quaker Ridge, right, all within a couple of spitting distance, and Fenway, you just you walk off in awe. At least I do. So uh, again, it's each one is so different. and it shows that he did what that land gave him and that's why i would put say those three i love those three
1: yeah i was i guess i was expecting you know three of the six that i mentioned prior so i'm happy you didn't do that um let's go to this one what is your favorite story about Tillinghast that we have yet to discuss is there anything we missed that stands out to you about the man could be the, him as a person, could be, you know, a novel story. I mean, you know, I, I, if you don't have one, I've got one off the top of my head.
0: Sure. He, um, among he loved to write, uh, I have a, a copy of a, uh, potential movie script. Yeah, that, really? That, yes. And, uh, there is a, actually was one six reeler from one of his movie scripts, and six reeler back then was a long movie. So he, he made, made,
1: yeah, I knew yeah, that's where I was going to go. Actually, was his writing, but uh, he actually wrote a movie that was made.
0: Yes, that you'll find in in, in the in the first book about the.
1: Yeah, that's where I, where I was going to go with it. So we have an inventor, right? Uh, yep. We have a rubber salesman. We have a successful business person. We have an athlete who played multiple sports. We have a golfer who played in the U.S. Amateur and U.S. Open. We have a world-class golf course architect and an author and editor and also a movie writer. Yep. <laughs> Is this uh, the, the world's uh, you know most interesting person? Is that where we're going with this?
0: And that's why he was so. Um, interesting to those he he would walk into a room with movie stars and take over because everybody knew he had every story in the world and and his, his he just his he was you hear bigger than life he was bigger than life he really was and um he enjoyed being it He, um, he, also, one other story that it, it's, it's my, probably my f- two favorite Tilly stories. One I've shared with some, they, they've known, I've mentioned this at, uh, um, uh, uh, some s- talks I've given it for clubs. Um, because of the times we live in, the, and it's, and therefore back as to how they lived back in his day, it's been thought that uh, Tilly may have been a bigot. Well, few people know, very few people, that in the Tulsa race riots that occurred, uh, for lack of better phrases, where the African-American computer community was wiped out, basically. It was horrific. Just a few weeks later, Tilly was down there to design a course in Tulsa. And the members of the course took him on a tour of all the burnt-out sections of the African-American community. And he was really moved by that. He wrote about it and condemned it. Years later, he was working on uh, a course. This was in the 30s. Um, Toward the end of the year, he realized his job foreman was doing a terrible job. He was coming in drunk every day, and he couldn't have that, and he fired him. And he decided that, uh, okay, we're going to be shutting down now anyway for the winter, And he already knew who he would replace him with. And he went up to this gentleman named Lon. He said, I want you. uh, uh, You're going to be the job site foreman next year. And he chose him because he was more respected than anyone else on site. And he said, look, Mr. Tillinghats, I have to go down to the Carolinas for my winter job. He goes, No. You and your wife, your wife, Mary, you're going to stay at our home this winter. You're going to live in the apartment above my carriage house, which. And all you have to do during the winter is shovel the snow when it snows. And I'm going to spend time with you, teaching you everything you need to know. So, okay, And he paid him for that as well. And so um, that winter. Strange thing happened one night. His granddaughter, Barbara, who lived next door, who witnessed this personally, looked out the window because people shouting, there was all these bright lights. He looked out and there on his front lawn was a cross being burnt because the Ku Klux Klan decided, what right did A.W. Tillinghast have to fire a drunken Irishman and replace him with an African-American? And Tilly stood up to them. And he kept Lon and his wife all winter and Lon worked the project the rest of the way.
1: That's an amazing story. I didn't know that story. I didn't see that in the book.
0: His granddaughter saw that, that that's actually in the uh, original biography. Yeah. Um, but my absolute favorite Tilly story that very few know about again, incurs occurs with the, uh, uh, is, is little shadow Barbara. Um, his wife would not go to a movie with him that had a snake in it. She was terrified of snakes.
1: <laughs> not even a movie.
0: And um, Tilly loved uh, – oh, and I can't think of the guy's name. That's going to kill me too. He, he would make movies uh, that uh, – in fact, he was the inspiration for the character in, in King Kong, who Carl Denham – who uh, made those wonderful nature movies. Well, that's what this gentleman did. And he wanted to go see this one in Manhattan, where it was playing. Right. So he took his granddaughter, Barbara. And what they did is, and she told me, said she loved that day. They were drove into the, see the movie. They were singing songs there and back. It was just she and her grandpa. Nobody thinks of Tilly as just grandpa. And it's just the most delightful story until the day she died. I could see that twinkle in her eyes whenever she talked about him. And that's something I'll never forget either.
1: That's awesome. That's a great way to go. So I got one more question. If there's one thing you would like our listeners to take away from our history with A.W. Tillinghast, what would it be?
0: To view golf architecture not from a ranking but from the joy you find in playing to recognize that it's not a an accomplishment to be able to get on every course it's an accomplishment to play courses and be able to say i love doing so and to recognize that tilly was an amazing and simple man who was able to do so much more than almost any of us would ever consider and enjoyed it, enjoyed every bit of it, the good times and the bad. He lived his life and he's left a legacy that is far more than the Greek golf courses. He's left a legacy of of the pleasure in learning about the why of these golf courses. Mm-hmm. You walk on a course, you're already asking yourself, "Why did he do this? Why did he do that?" Look, he did. He's he's engaged us across this entire span of time that he's not been living in, and and that's a remarkable achievement.
1: That is, <laughs> Phil. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Golf History.
0: My pleasure.
1: I had a great time, a great talk. I learned a lot. I mean, I mean, I learned a lot. And I've read, I've read these books that you sent to me, and I'm still staggered by the amount of information that you have still to share with the world.
0: Well, thank you. Appreciate All right. it.
1: This concludes our three-part series on A.W. Tillinghast, a podcast that has been three years in the making. A special thanks to Phil Young for spending this much time with all of us to share his passion. Go check out Golden Age Research LLC to learn more about Phil Young, his work, and how you too can buy one of his books on the great A.W. Tillinghast. This is the last show of season four. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We kick off season five in January with my friend and often producer of our show, Vaughn Halyard of the Story Lounge Film Company. It's a bit of a lighthearted episode to kick off season five. Until next time, yours in golf history, this
0: is Connor T. Lewis.